This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is the last of a dozen episodes on Raban Sama. Having met with all the dignitaries that his embassy on Argun's behalf required, Sama was anxious to return home. The delay caused by the Roman cardinal's failure to appoint a new pope had lengthened his stay beyond what he'd anticipated. Although no record of it is given, Argun may have urged Sama to return by a specific date. And so, he packed up and started the journey back to Persia. It was April of 1288. And remember, accompanying him was the French King Philip's ambassador, who bore a personal letter from the king to Argun. The one that Sama carried was an official correspondence. His route was the same as the one that he had taken west. The only change was his trip to Veroli that was southwest of Rome. The Cathedral of St. Andrew was an attraction that he decided to include on his way home. It wasn't really much of a detour. What's interesting about his stay in Veroli was his inclusion with several Roman church officials in issuing indulgences. These indulgences, usually issued in the name of Christ, were rendered under the auspices of God the Father, indicating a nod on the part of the Catholics to the Rabban's Nestorian emphasis. The Vatican Museum has some of these indulgences granted by Sama. They bear his seal, showing a figure with a halo, his left hand on his chest, and the right hand holding a star. It bears the text, Barsama Tartar from the Orient. Tartar being the common word that many Europeans used for the Mongols at that time. After Veroli, Sama took ship and arrived back in Persia in September, a journey of about five months. He was immediately ushered into the Ilkhan's presence. He handed off the various gifts and correspondences that he'd been given to pass along to Argon. Then he gave his report, a full account of his time in the West. Argun was especially pleased that the kings of France and England were on board for an alliance against the Mamluks. Though the Pope hadn't pledged to the alliance, he'd made clear his desire for closer relations. Stoked at that prospect, Argun looked with great favor now on the Rabban. He expressed his dismay at the hardships that Sama had endured on his journey and promised to take care of him for the rest of his life. He pledged to build the Rabban a church near the palace where he could retire to a life of quiet service of God. Sama asked that Argun send for his old friend Marya Balaha, head of the Nestorian church, to come to court to receive the gifts and letters that Western leaders had sent him. And while there, he could consecrate the land for the new church. And so the summons was duly sent. Argun had a special tent church constructed in anticipation of Marya Balaha's arrival. When the Catholicos did, a three-day banquet was thrown with Argun himself serving both Sama and the Nestorian patriarch. He commanded the people of his realm to offer regular prayers for the health of both the Rabban and the Catholicos. The favor that he showered on the Nestorians led to a greater boldness on their part all across Persia. In 1289, Argun appointed a Jewish physician as his vizier, or his prime minister, and turned over a good part of the governance of the realm to his capable leadership. With both Christianity and Judaism on the rise across Persia, unease among Muslims began to roil. Argun remained hopeful of the alliance with the West against the Mamluks. He sent a letter by way of a Genoese merchant to kings Edward and Philip, calling for them to make good on their promise of joining in a campaign to remove the Muslims from the Holy Land. He told them that the Mongols would be attacking Damascus in January of 1291. 
they were to attack the Mamluk headquarters in Egypt. They'd then meet in Jerusalem, where Argun would help them conquer the city and, once secured, turn it over to European control. Both Philip and Edward replied. While Philip's letter is lost to us, Edward's remains. He commended the Ilkhan for his zeal in wanting to rid the infidels from the Holy Land, but England wasn't able to mount a crusade apart from papal blessing, which Edward encouraged Argun to try to secure. But the Pope had already made it clear no such crusade was in the offing. Gauging the political winds, Pope Nicholas sensed that the monarchs of Europe were pretty much crusaded out. Argun's campaign against Damascus never materialized, and not because of the failure to gain Western support. In the spring of 1290, the Mongol Golden Horde to his north began a series of raids into Persian territory. Then, when a rebellion broke out in the important city of Khorasan at his eastern border, it meant that any movement west toward the Mamluks was now out of the question. A half a year later, he became gravely ill and died in March of 1291. Subsequent Ilkhans gave up attempts at an alliance with the West against the Mamluks. Though Ghazan converted to Islam, he attacked Syria and was able to hand the Mamluks a temporary defeat, but not able to hold the territory. When the Mongols retreated, the Mamluks returned. They were never able to defeat the Mamluks after that. As for the Europeans, while Edward and Philip were up for a crusade, the Pope wouldn't sanction one. The monarchs might have pressed the issue had it not been for their own issues at home. This was a time when Europe was fractured and disunited. Their inability to take advantage of the alliance that Argun offered meant that the Mamluks were eventually able to conquer the last Altremer fortresses in Tripoli and then finally the last holdout of Acre. When Argun died, Sama's promised church next to the palace hadn't been built. The new Ilkhan wasn't interested in the project, but at Sama's urging, he provided funds and permission for a new church to be built in the Nestorian headquarters at Maraga, next to Marb Yabalaha's house. It took three years to construct the elaborate structure, which became the home for many of the artifacts and relics the Rabban had collected on his travels. Now in his mid and late 60s, Sama settled into the life that he'd lived years before as a young man, one of quiet study and personal ministry to everyday followers of Christ. He reports that this was the happiest and most fulfilling season of his long and eventful life. His health finally failing, Sama was determined to see his good friend Marcos, who'd become the Nestorian patriarch under the name Mar Yabalaha, one last time. Though Marcos's residence was in Maraga, where Sama's church was, the headquarters of the Nestorian church was in Baghdad, and so the patriarch spent a good amount of his time there. Sama made the journey the last of his many travels. After an emotional meeting between the two friends who had shared such amazing adventures and accomplished so much, Sama's body, racked by intense pain, finally gave out. It was January of 1294. Mar was inconsolable. He wept profusely for three straight days. That was followed by a melancholy that took months to dissipate. Then the Nestorian Catholicos engaged in a series of correspondences with the Roman popes, following up on the lines of communication that had been forged by his good friend Sama. But the goodwill toward the church launched from Argun's appreciation for Sama's embassy to the west began to wither with the Ilkhan Ghazan's conversion to Islam. 
When Marya Balahad died in 1317, Christianity was on the decline across Persia and really all of Central Asia. It would never recover. The glory days of the Church of the East were now in the past and being covered by a thick dust of obscurity. Sama's records were discovered among his papers following his death, but were lost after being translated by a Syrian scribe some 20 years later. That account, as we've already suggested, was most likely highly abbreviated, focusing almost entirely on the religious aspects of Sama's adventures, specifically the many relics that he had viewed. The additional information in the Syrian translation comes off as, well, little more than a setting of context for the religious narrative. Sama's diplomatic activities are presented almost as an afterthought. But in light of Sama's groundbreaking and boundary-smashing embassy to the West, surely he took pains to document more than the finger and shin bones of dead saints. The Syrian translator does include Sama's journals of the years that he'd spent in Persia after his return from Europe. He even goes on to recount the persecution of Christians that took place after Sama's death when Ghazan became Ilkhan. The translator even admits, quote, It was not our intention to relate and set out in order all the unimportant things which the Rabban Sama did and saw. We have abridged very much of what he wrote, and even the things which are mentioned here have been abridged or amplified according to necessity, unquote. That necessity being the translator's interest in the religious rather than the political aspects of Sama's quest. And that may account for why Rabban Sama has been largely overlooked by popular history. His political impact wasn't recognized, subsumed as it was under the editorial bias of his early chronicler. Excised as well from his report were his observations of life in Western Europe, what would have been a tremendous boon to historians researching this period. In conclusion, while Rabban Sama never returned to China and the court of Kublai Khan to complete his adventure, he did accomplish most of what he'd set out to do. His original ambition, encouraged by his friendship with the young Marcos, was a religious pilgrimage to the headquarters of the Nestorian Church in Baghdad and the centers of Western Christianity. His dream of visiting Jerusalem, birthplace of the faith, went unrealized because of the Mamluk domination of Palestine. Sama was a genuine scholar who did more than read books. He went to the places that they wrote about. He was a gifted linguist, a skilled theologian, an effective diplomat. He must have been an eminently likable fellow who got along with everyone. All who met him embraced him quickly and sought to include him as an ally. His immense wisdom was repeatedly demonstrated and his skill at avoiding subjects sure to arouse the ire of his hosts. Finally, let's briefly recap his accomplishments. He began as a scholar monk in the storied Church of the East. His life of quiet study in a tiny house in the mountains of China was interrupted by a teenager named Marcos who had made Barsama his hero. They became inseparable friends. Marcos's itch to visit the places that he and Sama read about eventually infected Sama with the same hunger. They appeared before the great Kublai Khan, asking permission to head west on a heretofore unheard-of pilgrimage to the birthplaces of the Nestorian Church and the Christian faith. Kublai not only permitted them, he endorsed them as envoys of his court to his Mongol allies in Persia, the Ilkhans. The journey west crossed some of the most inhospitable territories on the planet. 
they encountered a mind-numbing plethora of different cultures, languages, customs, foods. When they finally arrived in Persia, the corrupt patriarch of their church tried to turn them into political pawns. They adroitly sidestepped his shenanigans. Then when he died, Sama helped to have his friend Marcos elected as the new patriarch, the Nestorian Catholicos known to history as Marya Balaha. After several years in Persia, the Mongol Ilkhan consented to allow Sama to continue his trek west so he could visit the centers of European Christianity. But he charged him with an additional task, being his official envoy, asking for Christian Europe to mount another of the crusades that they'd staged over the previous couple centuries, a crusade to clear the Middle East of the Muslim Mamluks. Sama then embarked on his second great journey, from Persia to Constantinople, where he met the emperor and eastern patriarch, then on to Rome, where he met the dozen cardinals who were meeting to select a new pope. When they were unable to, he headed to Paris, where he met with King Philip, then to Bordeaux to meet the English king, Edward. Securing promises of an alliance with the Persian Mongols against the Mamluks, Sama headed back to Rome, where he met with the newly installed Pope Nicholas IV and helped serve at the Easter celebrations. When the Pope proved evasive in pledging support for a new crusade, Sama headed back to Persia where he was welcomed by a grateful Ilkhan. Every student in Western schools learns of the famous Marco Polo. Almost any account of the Age of Discovery that helped lift the medieval world out of its moribundosity lists the adventures of Marco Polo as one of its premier causes. His chronicle, written down by a fellow prisoner, became a bestseller in Europe and whetted the appetite of Europeans for the exotic riches of the Far East. Raban Sama, who lived at about the same time, has been overlooked in the popular telling of history. Yet his travels and accomplishments far surpass those of Polo. If only that Syrian translator had translated all of Sama's journals. If only. I hope you've enjoyed this 12-part series on Raban Sama. I'm going to be going back now for a while to continue the redo of Season 1. And just as a reminder, whereas Communion of St. Torum didn't used to accept donations, the increased costs of hosting the site have required opening that option for subscribers. CS doesn't have any sponsors, and we don't use advertising on the site. So if you enjoy the podcast and want to kick us some bucks to keep it going, feel free. You'll find a donate button at sanctorum.us. Thanks. Hey, 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 hey.